I'm delighted to be joined in the downtown den today by uh, Professor Michael Parkinson, uh, well known um, to any uh, regeneration expert, uh, to many decision makers across the UK and indeed Europe, somebody who's specialised in uh, regeneration, rebuilding cities, a big advocate of devolved powers, devolved governments, uh, and an influential voice in many uh, policy areas uh, over the year. And we thought we'd um, shake, shake, shake things up a little um, because uh, we've done an awful lot of conversation about the crisis and how we uh, can potentially recover from that. It would be an absolute crime not to get Michael's views on that because he will have uh, opinions and he'll have some great ideas. That's the sort of character he is. Um, but we just wanted really to, to have a chat about Michael's career, which is fascinating, his journey and his contribution uh, that he has made to the various places that he's worked with. So welcome to the den, Michael. Lovely to be here, Frank, and lovely to see the blue side of the city. And of course, I'm wearing a blue sweater. <laughs> just feel better this morning, but uh, on we go. Yeah, I'm sure we will touch on... Uh, on the footy, we'll get the ball out at some stage. Um, listen, let's let's take back to, to sort of the, the early part of your career that I uh, am aware of. Uh, and of course, it was back in the, the 80s. And um, the 80s, for many cities, uh, and it can be easily forgotten, uh, was a time of great challenge, of great difficulty. Um, there was, I always felt during that period of time, uh, a school of thought within the corridors of Westminster Power, at least, uh, that cities had had their day, um, that it was time to start to move the economic development of growth of places uh, away from cities and city centres. And we had these awful, what I describe as awful anyway, um, very anodyne, uh, business parks sprouting up and, and retail parks and so on and so forth, which um, started to accelerate uh, some of those challenges that cities were facing. And of course, at that point, uh, you started to develop a very different thinking uh, and started to put together with uh, colleagues and peers and, as I say, decision makers, um, alternative ways of reviving and regenerating our great city. So tell us uh, what your thinking was at that time, how you got involved, what your motivation was and so on. Um, thanks, Frank, and you're right. I mean, when I, I started doing cities in about 1980, at that time, cities were seen as problems, battered cases, let's let them go part of the deindustrialization process, part of getting out of manufacturing. You know, in those days, London was the kind of cities, not the booming city. That's all over. City centers dead, suburbanizing all of that. But that obviously had the crisis in the 80s with Thatcherism, um, with uh, financial deregulation, with marketization, privatization. So all those fears about collapse in the 70s were aggravated by Thatcherism. And I really got into this, as you'll know, by talking about Liverpool and the impact of Thatcherism upon Liverpool. And I wrote in 1985, you know, I still think a very good book called Liverpool on the Brink, which was the story of how 
the really great imperial city had come to this and how it had collapsed. And so that was my point of entry. In fact, local formally shaped me. I was a student here in the 60s. Um, and it, it really made me, and it gave me a voice to write about cities. And I took Liverpool as an example of what had happened and what might happen. And I think I wanted to speak up for the city, but I also want to speak up for the idea that, you know, cities actually do matter. Cities are the wealth of nations. City can drive national economies. And you looked across the world globally, you'd see very different views of the role of cities. If you go to Europe, you'd see governments investing in cities, doing their, their technology, their infrastructure, their housing. So there's a very different view in other countries about what cities could be. And I think somehow by doing the Liverpool book, I kind of opened up that argument and then loads of um, So that's, that's really where I started it. And in a way, what I've been talking about the last 35 years is how this, this city and other cities in the UK, but this city got off its knees from those very difficult days when it gone from the, the richest port of the largest empire the world had ever seen in the 19th century to by the mid 90s, Liverpool was the, one of the poorest places in Europe and poorer than Sicily. So what a rise and what a fall. And of course, what I've tried to do the last 30 years is talk about that rise again. So that's where we started. And of course, it's all been fabulously interesting and, and great to be involved in it. Mm. <laughs> and I think that, you know, naturally your focus was on Liverpool, but I think the first time I probably saw Professor Michael Parkinson in action was, was in Brussels. Um, because I was leading this fabulous organisation, you recall at the time, called the Northwest Regional Assembly. Uh, and we had the job of um, negotiating with European commissioners about funding and so on. And I was, I was based up in Lancashire uh, and, you know, obviously had an emotional attachment to Liverpool because this is where I was born, where a lot of my family uh, still are. Um, but it was still then, Michael, you know, through the, the 80s uh, and the early 90s, seen as a bit of a basket case. Um, and of course, what you were watching whilst Liverpool was continuing to have its battles and its difficulties was a place just up the M62, which I know you took uh, great interest in, called Manchester, which took an alternative route and got out of their crises quicker. Did that cause you some frustration or, or was it as an academic something that you thought, well, actually, I'm going to learn the lessons from that place and apply them to, to my city and other parts of the world where I'm, I'm operating? Interesting, Frank. I thought we would not mention the M word in this talk, but now you know Manchester. Um, let me say, I'm a graduate of the University of Liverpool. I'm also a graduate of the University of Manchester. I did my graduate work there. I lived there in the 60s, so I'm attached to that as well. And I'm not sectarian about Manchester's no. success. I've written a lot about it, about how they came through. Um, I remember Graham Stringer said to me, when Margaret Thatcher won in 1989, he decided to run up the white flag and say, we're over with this. He got in Terry Thomas, 
and he got in. Alan Cox, Sean said, the private sector, help us fix Manchester. Mm -hmm. And that changing the spots made a difference. The rest is history, clear leadership, clear focus, getting the 10 authorities on side. Great story, uh, big picture from Howard Bernstein, who said in a pamphlet in 1983, four things will matter, the airport, trams, universities and city centre, spent 30 years doing it. Great story, congrats. We're a different story, we're a port. They've said to me, many of them, Richard Lisa said to me, Michael, I'd give my right arm for your river. Yeah. I mean, they're a great industrial city. It's heavy. We are a beautiful, elegant Georgian city with a river. Seriously, I would say 10 years ago, we were 20 years behind Manchester. Five years ago, we were 10 years behind. I think now we're seven or eight years behind. We're different, we learn. The European thing is interesting. I wrote, I think, in 1992, the first big report on Europe, on cities for Europe. I wrote urbanizations and the functions of cities in the European Commission, a dog of a title, but a very important report which said to Europe, invest in cities. That was the argument I made. And that became the basis of all urban policy in Europe for 20 years. I personally wrote the Urban Initiative, one wet day in Brussels, I'd gone to talk to my mind then, Marius Kami, she was a hysterical Greek and a great character, a terrible to work for. And he said, go and sit in that room. The MEP Doris Peck has said, by this afternoon, five o'clock, I want a new urban policy for Europe. You go in that room and write it, or you'll never speak to me again. So I did, and I wrote it, and that became urban policy in Europe. I mean, these chance things are important. Um, so I, I did, I never won that contract. I'd never been to Europe, but I had a very good group of people around me, very lovely Italian guy, very good German guy. And we had a story to tell. And actually, going back to Liverpool, I felt, even though I didn't know many European cities, I knew about one city. And once you understand one city, I think you can talk with a degree of confidence about other places. So, that's in a sense where the two stories came together. 80s Liverpool crisis, 90s Europe. Um, and then of course you might talk about, I got taken up by Blair, Prescott, yeah. uh, Miliband in New Labour, but that, that's uh, where I went into the making policy for um, the UK really. Um, but Europe, I think, I'm very proud of that. I mean, people still refer to the Parkinson report and it was only 100 pages, but it, it did set the agenda. I've stopped going to meetings in Europe because all I ever hear now is something I said in 1992. So <laughs> I just think, just get on and do it. Don't talk about it, lads. <laughs> uh, sticking with uh, with Liverpool for a moment, though, uh, and you know, listen, the places uh, you just said, you you know, it, it, the momentum of growth here, it, it's economic success in, in recent times. I think is a is a tremendously uh, positive story, and, and you played your part in that. Um, but let's just reflect a little on on the eighties. And and again, you mentioned Graham Stringer there, MP now in Manchester, of course. Um, I remember Graham from the early eighties. You know, and Richard Lees, uh, left wing firebrands, very much. 
uh, on the page of let's take the government on uh, all Tories uh, should be burnt at the stake you know that sort of approach um, and in Liverpool um, we had you know, a very powerful Labour movement uh, and of course at that time led by uh, militant tendency and again Michael you'll know um, you know and by the way some of those personalities are, are friends of mine so you know the, 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 the politics uh, doesn't always match uh, the personality friendships and so on um, but you know me personally I'll speak for myself Michael you know whatever the rights and wrongs of that situation it, it took the city an awful lot of time to repair the reputational damage that was done at that time um, because we were seen as uh, an outlier, uh, a city that was determined almost to stay outside of the status quo, take on the establishment, if I can put it that way, uh, and it cost us dear for, I think, over a decade. I couldn't agree more. Um, like you, I still know a lot of those characters. I mean, some did it for good reason, some for less good reason. Some are still around um, and good value of a drink. But yeah. I'd say two things about those days. My book, Liverpool on the Brink, said the city had a good case about the money and about the future of the city. And the Tory government had taken a bad situation and made it worse. Mm. That said, they over-egged the pudding. Mm. You know, it went very badly wrong. They misplayed their hand. They all got chucked out of office. The Labour Party split. And, and I think, Frank, it didn't take a decade. It, take, it took two decades mm -hmm. for those stereotypes and images and reputational damage to disappear. And I think, frankly, my friend, sad to say, even though we know we've come a long way and we're very different now than then, there are still some people in the Westminster bubble, in the media bubble, in the investment bubble, who still think the city is run by people who are running it then. You know, um, we still, I think, have quite a job to persuade what you call the establishment down there to recognise the scale of our achievement. Yes, we've got a long way to go, we know all that but the scale of the achievement and the direction we're going in is a very different place psychologically, culturally, politically, physically, economically. But I still think mud sticks and it would be unwise to forget that. And so I'm doing quite a lot of work now with a local brand group and on the whole, I used to think branding was a little bit trivial. Uh, but if you think a bit about, well, how you tell your story and as the brand guy Amazon said your brand is what people say about you after you've left the room and you still find there's a degree of casual racism about scouses that we have to address mm. and I always try and stand up if I'm down there and I I was once standing with Prince Charles and a very posh business person who was chair of Guinness Trust and he said something very unkind about scouts. This is 10 years ago. And I thought, well, I'm with HRH. I could let it go. Why make it seem? Mm. But I thought, no, if you let it go, it sticks. And so I said, I'm sorry, sir. I don't think it's fair to say that. I don't think it's true. And I think we always, in the right way, 
got to knock back on that. You know? And I still think it's a job to do. I was, remember when Peter Moore first came to the football club, been away for 30 years, he told me how surprised he was mm. at the legacy of some of that stuff down in London. So much better. We're fabulous. Got some problems now. We're fabulous. But never underestimate the way in which very senior people work with very simple pictures and often outdated cliches. Mm -hmm. And my new book said, look, I don't care if you slag off Liverpool. You don't have to agree with me. But don't do it until you come and see. Mm. Because if you come and see, you won't say those things. You'll say, my God, it's changed. Mm. Anyway, that's, that's what I think about those things. Yeah. And, and listen, it wasn't all bad news in the 80s, um, not just in terms of the, uh, the football at that time, when both blues and reds were celebrating in equal measure. Um, but there was a character who came to the city and, and almost adopted it uh, as a, a national project for himself. And that was Michael Heseltine, who you, of course, have got to know uh, and work with very closely. Uh, and I think, again, it would be remiss of us, wouldn't it, to not give Hesse uh, a mention when it comes to Liverpool's revival, because he's been a major player in terms of, uh, uh, of that regeneration uh, and the resetting uh, of Liverpool as a place. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's a general point we made about Michael Hazeltine, and I worked actually with him in government in the 90s doing City Challenge. The first point we said about Michael is that any good initiative in British cities over the last 35 years, he, in one way or another, was associated with it. City Challenge, the big on the north, big on industrial strategy. In my judgment, I said to Michael, and used to deny it, I said, Michael, you know you're in the wrong party. And he said, no, I'm not. Well, now we do know he was in the wrong party, throwing him out. But I have to say, seriously, all the big ideas uh, for cities across the piece Michael has been associated with. And on Liverpool, I think he saved us. You know, I remember he was telling me when he came out, he took over from Peter Shaw in 79, who'd been Secretary of State, and Peter Shaw had invented the inner city partnerships, the, the first time we had a go at cities. <clears throat> and Michael said, well, when he took over, his permanent secretary said, well, look, um, the Secretary of State just looks after one place, and Peter Shaw was doing Liverpool. How do you fancy that? He said, fine. And he took it on quite accidentally. He told me, and it is true, that uh, the development corporation on which I served in the very later years, a minor player, but I think started our transformation of the waterfront city centre upon which we built. Michael created Merseyside Development Corporation by accident. He wanted to do London, and a civil servant said, Well, you can't do uh, a national legislation for one place only. That's called hybrid legislation. He said, All right. Find me another place. And they said Liverpool. So we got the development corporation in Liverpool because of Michael. We all know the legendary stories of when he came here post riots, the, the, the 
National Incentives Group, the Minister for Society. He went native. I always remember I was sitting in the back of a room and he was trying to understand how um, a housing association or no housing co-op worked. And um, he kept asking more and more questions about it. More and more, how do you do this and how do you qualify? And this wonderful scouse woman said, don't worry, Michael, you'll never qualify for a house in our co-op, you know? And I think that's when he fell in love. But he loved the people. And he told me, and he wrote this book, when he'd been a boy in Swansea and Wales, he once went out of Swansea in a village and met a girl in abject poverty. And this would be what? And he said, until he came to the 80s, he was in such abject poverty. And it shocked him to the core. So he got it. He understood it. He believed in intervention. He was not a free market, that's right, obviously. Very opposed to all of that. He believed in intervention. He took it to his heart. And I just think development cooperation, garden festival sites, city challenge, devolution, the big report he did with um, Terry and... Um, Oh heavens, Terry Tesco, and we'll come back later. Yeah. Um, thank you, thank you. Sorry, Terry. Uh, um, big report on what to do about Liverpool. Um, he got it right, you know, and my university, my vice chancellor, myself, we had a festival for Michael a couple of years ago. We did a big report for him. We launched it in the House of Commons uh, six months ago. And it was very interesting. It was a sign of the times. At the event, um, someone said, well, this is marvellous. This is a non-political affair, you know. People from all parts of the country and all parts of the political scene are here. And then John Prescott stood up and said, it's not non-political. There are a lot of party political here. They just all happen to be Labour Party people. He was more popular with Labour than with his own side. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I think a lot of this is personality. He's a great man. He's very shy. He's a great man. He doesn't, he doesn't tolerate fools gladly. He doesn't take himself too seriously. But he got Liverpool. And I think, you know, he, he argued for us in cabinet. Not forgetful in those difficult days. One of them was Europe. It put in 1.4 billion pounds and over 12 years to get that status two things had to happen you had to be below 75 percent of gdp and national gdp which we were but you had to get national government to accept the status and the leader then harry rimmer said a tory government would never accept that a part of its country was that far behind we'll never get the Tory government to give us a status. Who got it for us? Michael Heseltine. So anything that played a part, those key moments, every five and 10 years he'd pop up. And I think, you know, when he got his freedom in the city, he was crying, yeah. really crying. Yeah. So great man and a great friend. And that's something you said earlier about politicians and politics and people. You need to distinguish but sometimes between real people and politicians. There are two kinds of politicians, right? Those in it for themselves and those in it for others. 
And I have to say, Michael has a time, a bit like Joe Anderson, a bit like John Prescott, in it for others, not for himself. Yeah, and, and having met the, the guy, you know, privilege of meeting him on several occasions, I couldn't agree more in terms of uh, the, the, the way in which he, he has embraced the city uh, and, you know, has a, a genuine emotional attachment to it as well. And, of course, is still involved in, uh, in promoting the city uh, at national level, which is fantastic. Listen, you've talked, obviously, about the Liverpool uh, now success story, we're, we're pleased to say. Um, but you also talked about your time in Europe. You talked about working other places and you've been a passionate advocate of devolution. And of course, despite the fact that we've seen some movement uh, of uh, decentralised powers from Westminster into city regions, and we've got now metro mayors in nine of our English city regions, we're still far behind, aren't we? Um, other European models. Um, so give me your thoughts on why you think devolved powers, devolved models of government um, work better than the system that we've uh, had in the UK for many, many years now. Um, quite simply, I think one, I've done a lot of reports over the years, I hadn't realised this. Um, I think the best piece of, one of the best pieces of work I did was five years ago for the European Commission. It was called Second Tier Cities in an Age of Austerity, Why Invest Beyond the Capitals? Okay. And I did that in response to um, the European Commission said to me, Michael, we get a lot of countries in Europe asking us to invest outside the capital city. Can you find any evidence that it would be better spring across investing in Paris or Rome or Helsinki or whatever? So I did a very nice piece of work, collected a lot of hard data, a lot of stories, went to a lot of places. And I came up with, I think, a very powerful argument which said countries which are more decentralized, with more powerful cities, have more successful national economies. The rule in life is always Germany does it better. They've done it better in COVID, as we know, and they do it better on cities. They are a decentralized federal system, obviously for historical reasons post the Nazi regime, but they decentralize their power, they invest in their cities, they invest in universities, they have a proper working relationship between national government, state government, and city governments. They let their cities have powers, financial powers, responsibilities. You know, the, some of these, Munich is the most successful city in Europe, but it's also like an old fashioned municipal city, you know? So I think there's a great deal of evidence, real hard economic evidence. If you let go, you succeed. And if you have more than one engine on your plane, you succeed. I made that argument for core cities in 2004. I made the argument again in 2012. And I have to say, I think that work was the intellectual underpinning. It was taken up actually not by Labour, but by Tories, mm -hmm. yeah? Because Labour 
97 to 2010 mm. was a pretty centralizing administration. There was a huge amount of social policy, but because Tony believed in targets and delivering and getting his money spent well, he wouldn't let go. Mm. When the Tories came in, there was frankly a, a gang of Tories who got it. Um, Michael Heseltine, who knew all my stuff, Greg Clark, a very good guy, uh, and Cameron, who was biddable, and of course, George Osborne. And then um, they got in uh, O'Neill. Mm. And so for four or five years, two or three years, we had a group of Tory politicians at the top who got the argument. And that's when we began to muck about and let go and metro mayors and city regions. That all went off the agenda. When they went out of office, the steam went out of devolution. Brexit took over. COVID's now taken over. So I think the evidence is from Europe, from the United States, you know, let go and you succeed. We are the most centralized country in Europe. Um, our cities have the weakest powers, the weakest resources. And I think that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, why they underperform. And I think if we were to take a message from the COVID crisis, it would be the war that we're in, the crisis that we're in. It wouldn't be one or lost at the centre. It would be one or lost in the localities. We now know central government can't run this kind of thing. It can steer, it can announce, but in terms of doing things on the ground, just as we said, national government can't do placemaking. That's got to be done on the ground. It goes back to our conversation at Manchester, because I have to say, they got that and they use the powers to create a very powerful city. It's, it's the most best example of using the powers you can get to make a place. So I think um, we made some progress imperfect between 2010 and 2015. That argument will come back. I think one of the big messages out of COVID would be we need to find a way of empowering our cities to make them proper places again. And I think that's the key story. Joey! Fran? Yeah? Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> I love these little interruptions they get. I'm waiting for my six-year-old daughter to wander in any time now and start uh, asking for a lunch. Um, so we've moved into um, another period of, of potential crisis and challenge for cities uh, and obviously you will have been uh, sought after for your advice uh, I know that you've been talking to the combined authority in Liverpool I'm sure other people will be in touch as well um, and I wanted to to look back on your career and some of the highlights and listen we've only skirted over what has been uh, you know a fascinating 30 years plus um, but in the context of that experience, and given the fact that you have, as you rightly say, evidence-based analysis that tells us that where cities have devolution, where they have resource, where they have the wherewithal to get on and deliver stuff, they are much more efficient and effective than doing that than national governments. And given the fact that we've got a former London mayor as prime minister, do we have any optimism that those messages of increased evolution and perhaps providing 
more empowerment to the Andy Streets, Andy Burnhams and Steve Rotherhams of this world, uh, we'll actually get a, a, a more positive hearing in the corridors of power at the moment. Uh, answer, yes. Um, partly because Johnson was London Mayor, um, partly because Johnson isn't very ideological, he likes projects, he likes delivery, he can work out, we want to deliver stuff, trust the locals. Um, partly I think, as I've said already, the message from COVID will be, you know, if you're going to do testing, we do environmental stuff, you need to have it at the coalface at ground level. Um, I think it's also very important the next, next three months, next six months, 12 months are very important in this country. We've had a wretched two or three years of a Brexit. It's drained energy, drained enthusiasm, drained optimism, drained unity. We're now going through a terrible crisis where we know nearly 30,000 people have lost their life. And this is just unbelievable to find that we're now the worst performing country in Europe in this crisis is really unacceptable. And there will be a wrecking on this, I know. Um, we now have to get the decisions right in the next three, six, 12 months. Millions, trillions of dollars globally will be spent when we come through this. We need to be spending that in the right way, not in the wrong way. We need to know that some of the things that we were doing in the last 10, 20 years, some were working, some weren't. Some things were good, some things were broken. And I think we need to ensure that the decisions we make about our cities, our places in the next period are made locally to do the right thing. For example, we know that in this period of uh, great success and our chronicle it, um, not everybody did well and the gap in our city grew in the last 10 years. That is unacceptable particularly since the poor people have paid the price in this war in terms of deaths, more poor people, in terms of exposure to risk, in terms of having to work, in terms of risk of unemployment. We can't be clapping on Thursday night and going back to the old days. So an issue about inequality has to be addressed here. Second, look on the bright side. We know that because we're all at home, not driving our cars, not traipsing around, there's less traffic jams, there's less pollution. Here's an opportunity to think green, yeah. Um, so, and then I think we've got a lot of assets we can build upon in the city, which I think we, we know, but medicine will now become, we're a global leader in infectious diseases. This is an opportunity to say, look, we are now not a basket case. We lead the world. We're, you know, we're right up there with these countries and these cities and these universities making these changes. Let's back those. So we're going to go through a period when we night decide what kind of place we're going to be for the next 20 years. We will come through this crisis. Sadly, many people will pay a very heavy price now in terms of health, and I fear some will pay a price for quite a long time economically. But now is the time to say, what kind of place do we want to be? And I think, for me, two, two really important questions which we have to address and I think we can only address them locally. They can't be addressed, I think, down there. The first question is, how do we make this city, the place that people, the organizations, the institutions 
more resilient in the future. And I think we have to find our way into that. And the second simple question is whose city? Who is it for? And that issue of the gap between better off places and better off people and worse off places and worse off people. The fact that we have, we know, a 12 year health age gap within this city between the worst ward and the best ward. That is one of the reasons why we have got the second highest rate of death rate from COVID because we have so many poor people with bad health and poor circumstances. And I think when we are through this, and we will come through it, and I'm very impressed by the way people are working together, the city, city, region, private sector, community. I think Liverpool has shown great resilience and it's to be admired, actually, really admired. I think people have shown great forbearance as well in the main observing lockdown. You know, and we've been through this before. We've been through crises in the way many other cities haven't. So I think the question of how do we capture the best of this crisis? How do we become more resilient? And who is it really for in future? These are the burning questions that we have to address. And they have to be addressed by us. Ergo, the question of what kind of place you want to be for whom is really the important question a reason why you want the power to take that decision. You don't want the power to take the decision just to take the decision. It's because you want to do the right thing and you can't trust the centre to do the right thing for our particular circumstances. Mm. And if I may stick with the positive narrative, Michael, you've mentioned health science innovation. Uh, we've just had a massive deal uh, announced uh, in the Knowledge Quarter a development again I know that you are very closely associated with uh, and of course that's going to be a huge area of potential growth for Liverpool uh, going forward. Where are the other uh, sector strengths that you think Liverpool can begin to look at supporting now uh, because I know again uh, from past conversations you're a big believer in backing winners. Uh, you know let's not be taking limited resources and and taking not a risk, but you know, frittering away money on things that that may uh, come good when actually you can put your money on things that you know are going to deliver. Uh, and in times when you're coming out of crises as we are now, it's those winners that we've really got to find and we've really got to back. Um, absolutely right, Frank. I think. If I go back to Europe, save Liverpool in the 90s and onwards, they came and said, look, we've got in this brand bag 1.4 billion pounds. You can have it, but you have to answer this question. What are you for? What are your priorities? What do you need? Do you need an airport? Do you need infrastructure? Do you need training? Do you need a science park? Those are questions we now have to ask. What are our priorities going to be? So first of all, the knowledge quarter, and it links to Darsbury and across to Port Sunlight, is, I think, a really significant world-leading, potentially world-leading opportunity. This is not just some small thing at the top of Brownlow Hill. I think this has got the potential to really raise our profile and performance internationally, globally. Because there's medicine there, there's advanced manufacturing there, there's material innovation there, there's a whole bundle of stuff. So that's a very big deal. Personalised medicine, infectious diseases, material, um, advanced materials, 
huge there. Secondly, um, the, Steve Rotherham has pitched on a couple of big ideas, and I think you need big ideas. We are now in a digital world. We talked earlier about do we always want to be on Zoom or do we want to be face to face? Well, in future, we're going to do both. But it does mean that digital is a really big deal. We will work differently, we will socialize differently in the future than we did in the past. And being digitally wired up is very important. So having 5G is fantastically important. It's also the case, if you look at the bits of the local economy, a bit which is currently quite small, but huge potential, is the digital and creative in the Baltic quarter. Yeah. Yeah? We don't have a big plan for that yet. I think we should be saying, look, this city now is attracting young kids, entrepreneurs, they used to go away and now coming back and they're in these, they're in these, this industry that probably you and I don't understand, but we know it matters. So I think the whole digital thing and creator thing will be very important as well. There's lots of scope there. I mentioned the fact earlier, we're all driving less. You know, they say about China, 3,000 people died from coronavirus and 40,000 people didn't die from pollution. You know, we have a chance to make what we have to make anyway, which is a sustainable, low carbon, green economy. Because that's obviously the bigger, bigger crisis, which is just round the corner. And we have green potential, fantastic. We've got the river, we've got the wind farms, we've got recycling. So advanced, digital, low carbon, green. Yeah. I still think when this is all over, we will behave very differently. We don't know the psychology and sociology of how we will behave in future, but we will want to celebrate the cities again. So culture in the widest sense, we've got to invest and support. Yeah? Um, it's been a big, big driver of the city. And we were joking before about our respective allegiances in football terms. Both those football clubs, are hugely important financially. Local football club turnover is about, as I say, in this local university, it's about 500, 530 uh, million a year. Both clubs, and particularly Bramley Moore, what happened, and which I very much hope it doesn't think it will, despite all of this, they're big drivers as well. So the, the, the visitor economy needs to kind of be massaged back. It's taken a terrible hit. It's a face to face business. We've got to see how we can have culture in a different way in the future. And then finally, I know something you were chatting with Joe about on a previous chat. Um, my book, Liverpool Beyond the Brink, talked about the fantastic renaissance of Liverpool, incomplete but still fantastic, and applauded ourselves. I said, we've got three big issues. Productivity was too low. We need more firms, more skills. Fine, I've talked about advanced manufacturing, knowledge digital. Uh, people, I said, we've got too many people left behind. I've talked about the fact that post-COVID, uh, we've got to close that gap and pay attention to that gap. And the other thing is place. I said about place, the risk was that we would kill the goose that lays the golden egg, which is local city centre, by overdeveloping it in the wrong way. Yeah? I don't think that's a risk now. I think the risk is we take our eye off the city centre. The city centre is still a 
fantastic driver of the Liverpool City region economy. It provides work to many people who live outside Liverpool local authority. So I think it's very important as and when we get going again, we ask ourselves the question, what kind of city do we want and what kind of investment? So there, there would be my five things. The knowledge quarter, digital, green, creative and culture, and then the physical place, the city centre. Yeah? You might say, Michael, well, we don't know that. We were doing that anyway. There's nothing new under the sun. The crisis has, in my view, simply exaggerated a lot of our underlying dilemmas. Yeah? These are not new dilemmas. We weren't productive enough, and our economy has been hit. Why? Because we have too many jobs who are vulnerable. We need to get more house skills in here. We have too many poor people. Why we didn't pay enough attention on national policy matters. So that's a big thing. The city centre we invested in, it drove our... So the way we do things, I think, will inevitably be different. And I have no way of predicting how different. But the key things which really matter, I think, are those which we worked out for ourselves over the last 35 years. Yeah, stick to the knitting, do a good job, back what you are good at, yeah? And then trust yourself, you know, we all know, we all know, there's clear evidence, Liverpool is the best place in the world, isn't it? Because <laughs> you and I agree. Um, and I think that's what you have to aspire to. I'll, I'll let you into a little secret, I've been involved in a brand group. And I've been working on this for 12, 18 months, two years. You know, how do we reposition Liverpool down there? And what's the story to tell? And if you had to pick a word, what would it be? And I remember the group we were in, actually in, down in London, talking to some heavyweights. And people said, this is pre-COVID. Do we want to be the most innovative city? Do we want to be the most connected city? Do we want to be the most global city? Do we want to be the most exciting city? And I led a little group said, they are ways of getting somewhere. What we want to be is a good city. Let's be a good city. Good for everyone. Good to see. Good to come. Good to go. You know? And I just think, I'm proud of that. I think we'll end up saying, Liverpool is a good place. And I think that would sound better than any other sexy thing you could do. It's so old-fashioned, yet that's who we are and what we are. Sorry, that's a scarce nationalist talking. That's not the professor. <laughs> it's not a bad strapline, though. Uh, listen, it wouldn't be a conversation between you and I if we didn't get the ball out. Uh, and I know that it's been a fabulous uh, season until it was curtailed for, for Liverpool. Through gritted teeth, even I have to... Uh, admit for the past couple of seasons, actually, Jurgen Klopp and his team have uh, have served us some fantastic football, and I'm sure it's been an absolute joy for for you to watch, as much as a joy for you as it's been a pain for me. Um, I, I, listen, I don't want to get into the debate about when and if the football season uh, can restart, because you know my view is at this moment in time there are bigger priorities than that. But nonetheless, for cities and not just ours, uh, football and Premier League football is a huge economic 
um, asset. You've referred to, to Liverpool's turnover, you've referred to Everton's plans for a new stadium. All that's going to be hugely important in the future. Um, but I just want you to reminisce um, because you know, you've been watching Liverpool for a fair number of years now and you've seen some good times. Uh, you've seen some bad times, not as many as I have as an Evertonian. Um, what are your standout memories, Michael, of those great Liverpool sides that you've watched down the years? You're not going to believe this. 1957, Liverpool playing playing Blackpool in the third round of the FA Cup replay and Ronnie Moran scoring a penalty in the last minute to win 3-2. That's how old I am. Um, Seriously... Um, 1965, Liverpool, Inter Milan, they all appeared with their banner at Anfield. Milan, the cream of Europe, and the cops singing, we beat them 3-1. The cream's gone sour, the cream's gone sour. Uh, That, um, inevitably, uh, I did go to Istanbul. Mm. I was there. And I, you know, if you weren't there, you don't know what it was like. It was absolutely, utterly extraordinary. Mm. Utterly extraordinary. And we've all heard the stories, but when the Scousers at half-time saying, you'll never walk alone, you know, we'd been humiliated. Mm. The gorgeous Milanese ladies in their soft leather and their blonde hair. I've been walking around Istanbul, there's the Scousers and they're cheating all on football. You know, but I tell you what, the Milanese were sitting in the restaurants and the Scousers were in the museums. You know, we're proper people. And at half time, I said, Why did I ever do this? Why did I invest? How could I invest so much of my life and personality in this enterprise? And then the rest was history. So you can never believe get over that. And I have to say, some years later, I was sitting in a very posh um, restaurant in a museum in Italy uh, with Berlusconi's people. He owned into Milan. And I was able to say, yes, I remember the game. (laughs) Um, And uh, I've lost. We went to Athens and lost. Mm. Um, So, and I, you know, you you refer to Klopp, Henri Scanser. You know, proper, proper person. And I have to say, um, we went to Madrid, um, saw the game, almost missed the bus back, luckily just caught the plane. Was too tired to go to the parade, but I have to say, the game was a dog. Mm. The parade was what made it. Three quarters million people, you know, where else? Where else? And that wasn't the football club, that was Liverpool. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some nice memories there, Michael, for any Reds that are watching and uh, neutral football supporters. Of, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are a few. Um, and I, I just picking up on those personalities and the, uh, the leadership and management uh, styles of, of both Jurgen Klopp and now, of course, we've got Carlo Ancelotti in town as well. I mean, it's an absolute boom for for our city to have two such, you know, it's, it's football royalty, isn't it? It really is. Um, but if I may end on 
the link between business and football, and it's not the financial one. It's how much now business is tapping into the world of sport um, to actually look at and, and, and study the Jurgen Klopp's and the Carlo Ancelotti's and those people who appear to be able to get out of teams, out of individuals, that extra 10, 20%, develop great cultures within the clubs that they manage, develop this engagement with the fan or customer base, as we'd say in business. Uh, and again, Michael, that's a fairly new phenomenon, uh, but something I know that will have interested you. Absolutely. I once remember asking Philip Carter, Sir Philip now, um, in the 80s, why did, he, why did he think we had two of the best-run football clubs in the country at that time and probably one of the worst-run cities? And I thought it said everything. Philip said to me, Michael, I've never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a comment about against Philip. That's a comment about the inability to realise the, the role and relationship. Yeah? Secondly, I would say, you know, I'm a red or a blue. I'm, I'm not sectarian. When I came to the university in the 60s, I went Everton one week, Anfield next week. I saw the Golden Vision. I saw Roy Vernon. I saw Jimmy Gabriel. I saw some of the best football of my career then. And I saw Ball, Kendall, and Harvey as well. So I'm not sectarian. I want, you know, two, two top teams, us first, you second. But, you know, I don't want you relegated. And um, what I would say um, is Liverpool was a great team, but not a well-run club. Mm. And frankly, we fell from grace. And when the second Americans came, that was the difference. I mean, from now... I know the Red Sox. I've lived a lot of state, time in the States. I like baseball. I know the Red Sox. I know what they did there. And I thought they will bring a different mentality, a different attitude, a different view of the world, a different culture to the previous Americans. And I remember when um, John Henry was asked by a journalist on their arrival, he, he was asked, well, how do we know you'll be any better than the last lot of Americans, Hicks and Gillette? And I don't think the interviewer realised the answer. He said, they're from Texas. We're from Boston. <laughs> you know, we're proper people. We understand about history. We understand about culture. Yeah. They're cowboys. Yeah. We're civilised. Yeah. And I have to say, <clears throat> the last 10 years has shown, yes, it's a commercial operation that milks every penny. But most of the pennies go back into the club, into the players, you know, so it's a business model with a purpose. I know the asset has, you know, increased phenomenally and it's probably six or seven times um, more valuable now when they bought it. Um, but I, I do think that, I also think, you know, you're quite right about Colin Ancelotti. Um, I think what both he and Klopp have got is emotional intelligence. Mm. When, you, when you hear Ancelotti talk, he's a proper person. Yeah. He's got a hint and, you know, we've seen some of the stories about his treating with ill people. We've seen Klopper. I mean, these people get it, you know. They're big people. They have emotional intelligence. And I, I like Jürgen's line, you know, football is the most important of the least important things in the world. Mm. You need to have that sense of perspective, mm. you know. Um, 
And I think they have it. And it, it comes to, I was thinking people will want me my chat. I've never taken myself seriously, but I've taken my work seriously. Mm. And I think that's an important distinction, you know? And people who take their work seriously, others will follow them. Mm. People who just take themselves seriously, people work out pretty soon, you're not for us. And I think there's nothing fancy about this. It's old fashioned virtues. You know, yoga comes in the black forest, you know, they're humble people. Don't get above yourself, don't take the piss, you know, so. But I, going back to your bigger thing, um, I would say about the city of Liverpool itself, which is poorly managed in the past, historically. I think now is an opportunity. I think, I think Joe Anderson, he has many critics and he probably has a number of faults, but I think he's done a huge amount in the last 10 years. Um, I, I think Tony Reeves, his chief executive, is doing a good job and getting good. There's a good team in the city now. So we, we had some challenges, but I think we are beginning to professionalize the city council, which I think is absolutely necessary because as I said earlier, when we come through this and we will come through, who knows when and how, we need the right people to make the right decisions. And if you just take that parallel of how Fenway and Klopp turned a once great organization but failing into the best in the world for in 10 years, I'd be optimistic about taking what was once the second greatest into its new post imperial global world. I think it's all to be fought for, and I'm confident we'll do it. Michael, on that positive note, can I thank you very much for the hour and a bit that you've spent with us? Fascinating conversation. And, uh, you know, let's uh, do it again live in the not too distant future, yeah? Brilliant. Frank, great pleasure. And you stay well, stay strong. Keep up the good work, mate, okay? Cheers, mate. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you. Bye.